From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Scott Davis landed his first professional film job as a painter. It was an entry-level position, but he was happy to have a foot in the door. After he started work, he learned he would also play a small part as an actor on that project. The film was Firestarter. It was the early 1980s in Wilmington, and for the next almost four decades, Scott Davis would work on major motion pictures doing everything from rigging to best boy to key grip, and eventually producing his own work. It was the 1990 low-budget indie film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that gave him his first key grip job. Since then, he's worked in some professional capacity on Stephen King's The Night Flyer, Tammy, the TV series Matlock, Bolden, and Oprah Winfrey's The Wedding, among many others. In 2019, he received the Layla Thompson Award for Enduring Contribution to Wilmington Theater as part of the Star News Theater Awards. The 2017 film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, closed the book on his film career. Today, we'll find out why. We'll learn about his adventures in the screen trade and his advice for the next generation. He joins me now. Scott Davis, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. The North Carolina Filmmakers Series is offering a free screening of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles this Sunday, June 12th at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington. Scott Davis will answer audience questions after the film. Despite the fact, Scott Davis, that we are admittedly focused mostly on film today, I want to start with this Lifetime Achievement Award that you received in 2019. It was... It was a Star News Theater Award, the Layla Thompson Award for Enduring Contribution to Wilmington Theater. Tell us a little bit about that award and and just what it means to you. Well, first of all, let me say I shared it with my dearest friend, Jeff Loy. Jeff and I met back in 1984. Uh, We were actually building a haunted house for Tony Rivenbark, probably the first one. And uh, Jeff came bouncing in, and uh, he mentioned a mutual friend that was one of his teachers at ECU, and we just clicked. Um, I had already done Firestarter by this point, but Firestarter was just a one-off. I mean, you know, all of us in this area that got a chance to be on it, that's all we wanted. We just wanted bragging rights that we worked (laughs) on a film because we were doing theater. And uh, I was actually still trying to figure out where my next destination was with live theater. Um, I was the technical director at Thalian Hall at the time. Um, Were you the first technical director? I was probably the first paid technical director. That Tony Rivenbark hired. Oh, yeah. And see, and I've known Tony since I was nine. And, of course, listeners know Tony as the executive director of Thalian Hall Center for the Performing Arts. And he just won the the, uh, Thomas and Elizabeth Wright um, uh, Award for lifetime achievement yes, in the area. Well deserved. So, so anyway, but Tony, uh, Tony came to me. I was working on a show there, and he said, "Hey, I've got a little bit of money. You want to be the TD?" And so I did that, and 
And then in 84, Cat's Eye shows back up, and I got on as a painter on that one. And so I kept coming in and out for a couple of years. And then Dino came to town, and he taught 1,200 people how to make movies over the next three years. And And you were so anchored, though, in the local theater community. I mean, that's kind of of what's interesting about your story, because we'll get into your childhood in just a minute. Yeah, sure. But you and Jeff Loy... Oh, yeah. I mean, at that been point, involved well, in we Wilmington were, Theater. And we were running the technical side of theater in this town. I mean, we were our own little gang. And um, and between us, we were building the sets and lighting it. And uh, I was directing some. Uh, you know, the, this is when Don Ansel came into the mix as the, uh, 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 the our first uh, managing director of Failing Association. Um, it was uh, it was it was a very exciting time in Wilmington theater wise. Yes, you know? yes. But there was absolutely no money. You know, I mean, I mean, of course, back then, you know, I mean, I rented I rented a third of an apartment on Fourth and Grace with two friends of mine for seventy five dollars a month. Wow. You know, wow. I mean, now, again, it was it was a hundred and fifty year old house and it hadn't been updated in one hundred and fifty years. But <laughs> anyway, and um, go, going back to that award, that Lifetime Achievement yeah. Award, John Staten actually wrote a really beautiful piece. It was such a a well put together, thorough, compelling piece about the two of you, you and Jeff Loy, yeah. why you shared the honor. And you both agreed in that interview with John that it was the right thing. And in fact, Staten quoted Loy as saying that you both have huge egos, but they fit into each other's pockets. Yeah. Now explain what that means. Well, it just means that um, th- there's an amazing amount of mutual respect for us professionally, but we, we really are brothers. Um, from different mothers. And so the love really just kind of overpowers any potentially. I, I don't think he and I have ever had an argument about what we're doing, you know, other than, you know, no, the screws should go every foot, no, the screws should go every 18 inches. But really, um, egos are always left at the door. You know, um, um, I can walk into a set that he's lighting and, and he's got to leave to go do a bigger project. And I can just see what he's doing and know exactly the direction to continue. You've and done that. You've stepped in on and, jobs and before when he's both, had to leave. We've both done that for each other over the years. And, and there's, a real, there's a real comfort in that. I mean, when he calls and says, I need you. I don't even hesitate. I just say, what time? And I walk in and we don't have to have a lot of discussion. And then he's out the door. Yeah. And and vice versa. So it, it, it really a beautiful relationship, and we both needed to share that award. Now, you actually mostly grew up in Wilmington. Your um, parents moved you here when you were nine years that's old. Right, that's you moved right. from Queens, New York. That's right. That's, that's quite a shift. And at the time, would that have been the 1960s? It would have been 1969 when we came in. And so integration had just started, um, you know— um, like I said, I had been in Queens the previous five years, and I was a little kid, but, you know, there was a ton of us from all over the world living, you know, compacted together. So when I got down here, it was a much more white and black environment, and uh, which I just did, I didn't understand the vibe at that age, you know. Do you but, remember feeling the tension? <laughs> oh, I remember getting the crap kicked out of me, you know, uh, a couple of times. But, you know, again, it was... When you look back at it, it was just just frustrations. Yeah. You know, it wasn't it wasn't so much hate. It was just frustrations, and uh, but we all got through it. 
you know, I mean, guys that I was fighting with in the sixth grade, I was hanging out with in the 10th in the grade, you know. So so it did get better. Well, it, it did. And, and, you know, you're you're kind of forced into it because you have to be together. So you, you find that media, that that center ground. Your dad is an interesting well, guy. I mean, he was. Yeah, he was pretty he was pretty exciting in the 80s. I mean, uh, he he uh, he took over the Arts Council in uh, in uh, 75 when. Uh, Nobody wanted the job, really, and within five years, he really had created... He had helped start dance companies, theater companies. You know, people would just come in and say, I, I want to I do this thing, and he'd say, all right, well, let's go find some money, and he'd write a grant for 500 bucks, and boom, there you were off and running. And again, back then, this town was so small, and uh, which was funny because, you know, 200 years ago, it was the largest city in North Carolina. Right. And yes. now we're just this this dead-end destination. I mean, you didn't, you, you didn't drive through Wilmington. You had to come to Wilmington. Anyway, he, he, really, he really ignited a lot of artistic excitement throughout this area from 75 to 80. And, uh, and so is he the reason that you wound up kind of working in the theater? Did that introduce oh, oh, you? Oh, absolutely. My parents took us down to Thalian Hall when I was 9, 10, me and my brother, because they got involved with the community theater because they figured in a town this small, that's where the fun people were. <laughs> and and they, and when we were in New York, you know, they would go buy cheap tickets at, for Broadway shows all the time. You know, they'd go watch matinees and stuff. And so theater was in in our house every Saturday when Mom would be cleaning the house. It was Broadway musicals. I mean, I grew up with I Do I Do and The King and I, and uh, yeah, um, who else? Uh, Sound of Music. I mean, it was just it, they, that's what filled our rooms. And uh, and Thalian Hall became my brother and I's babysitter in the early years. I mean, we would literally do our homework have our dinner, fall asleep. And uh, were well, you a performer? Well, I, well, actually, my first performance was Gypsy, and I was one of the newsboys. Extra, extra. And, uh, but, uh, and my mother was in it, and that's a whole story, but uh, she basically shows her rear end. And in this town in 1972, she was playing one of the strippers in the, in the dressing room, and she walks downstage, she grabs a spear off the proscenium, and then she turns around. She's in a bodysuit, but she looks naked, and so you see her backside. And oh my God, <laughs> we, were, we were charlatans. Oh, we were, I bet. Uh, but no, it, it, uh, no my, my, I will say that as a family, we definitely pushed this town forward in different little ways. As, as we all went along, you know. And you wound up going to the North Carolina School of the Arts I for did. college. You were going to be did. an actor. I, I was. And that's a really, really fine school. Oh, no. It's a great conservatory. Oh, oh, no, Hard to was. get in. It was. And I just, I, uh, years later when I looked back at those, at those years, I was too young. I wish I had taken a gap year to just grow up a little bit, you know. For me, it was just the first time out of town and with a bunch of like-minded people and you know we did a lot of we did a lot of cool things but after a couple of years I realized I wasn't really ready and also I thought every one of my classmates was way better than I and if they don't get work I'm definitely going to starve so oh. I mean, so all this is going on in my head you know and so how did you actually shift your your thinking about what you were going to do as an adult because you wound up leaving the school of the arts and well, you had something in mind well I was uh, I the dean of uh, drama um, at the time had offered to write a letter to Northwestern University. They had a pretty good directorial program, and he really felt like that's where my talents might, might lie. And, uh, and I was excited about that concept, but I wanted to take a year off. And which, you know, I wish I hadn't taken that year off because I wanted to go <laughs> in that direction. But anyway, uh, that was where I was going. And then I ended up coming back home 
moved down to Charleston, was waiting tables and during the day and doing some theater at night. And then I came back home again for personal reasons and really had planned to take off again. You know, I was looking at larger cities. And then that's when uh, Dino knocked on the door in 1983 and said, hey, I'm coming to make a movie. And I just read the book Firestarter, so I really wanted to be involved. You're listening to Coastline. Scott Davis, longtime key grip in the film community and lighting designer for local theater, is with us today. When we come back from this short break, we'll hear that story about Firestarter, how he got that job. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Scott Davis grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, and when he went to college at the North Carolina School of the Arts, he had every intention of becoming an actor. His work took a different turn, though, and he landed his first job as a key grip on the 1990 film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The North Carolina Filmmakers Series is offering a free screening of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles this Sunday, June 12th, at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington. Scott Davis will answer audience questions after the film. Now, Scott, let's go back to this first film job, which was Firestarter. This is a Stephen King film starring a very young Drew Barrymore. It was the first big film produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Here. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. That's important. Yes, yes, that's right. And you actually wound up with a small part in the film. So you, I, I know you have some really good stories to tell about this. But let's just start with this clip. In this scene, we hear the doctor first, the one who is running an experiment that you're going to tell us about later. And then we hear you. Let's listen. Are there any questions? Uh, Dr. Wanless, is this experiment being done by the shop? No. Absolutely not. Yes. When do I get my money? Right on. That's Heather Locklear. Well, immediately after the experiment, along with all the other students. I'm broke, too. So, if we may begin the injections now, please. I love you. And that's All David Keith talking to Heather Locklear. That long? Yes. Having a telepathic experience too. with each other. And the screaming, that's you, Scott Davis. Yes, it is. Okay, so help us. Uh, what was the experiment that the doctor it was, it was, was doing? It was a hallucinogenic experiment. And, uh, you know, you know, there's all kinds of history about all that. But uh, 
in this film, the concept is that they're they're being given some sort of hallucinogenics, and of course, uh, David Keith and Heather Locklear, they both get this stuff. They don't rip their eyes out like I do, but they end up having a, producing a child who has these amazing abilities to start fires. So this is why we hear you screaming at so, the end of yes, that because, clip and fire starter. Because I didn't have a good time. Yes, you you yes. were ripping your eyeballs out. I was ripping out. my eyes off, and they grab me and run me down on a gurney out down the hallway and around the corner, and I'm screaming and screaming. Finally, the director yells, cut, and the entire room just erupts in applause, and and uh, and then they the director wanted to do it again, but I'd already ripped out my eyes, so then we just did it with my <laughs> hands already in my eyes, and they pumped the blood from the back of my head, and and I, I scream, and they grab me, and they run me down, you know, again, all the way down the hall, and they cut and then big applause again and from that moment on everyone on that stage knew my name and so when Dino came back I kind of had a little bit of an edge in the sense of I could be walking down and people that were in the props department and the you know whatever camera department they'd go hey Scott Davis Scott Davis you know and it's just because of that one tiny little role you know I mean uh, how did you rip your eyeballs out it was it was latex it was horrible it was such an ugly thing <laughs> uh, you know I mean the guy from Italy who did it I'm sorry I don't know his name but you know apparently he was a master and I, you know I don't know but uh, Everybody that day loved it. So, you know, that's, that's all that really matters. But I really want to talk about getting my job as a painter because it's, it's a story I really love to tell to students when I speak to them. Whenever I, I talk to film students, I, I first try and talk them out of it. You know, completely because. <laughs> Wait a minute. You, well, why? because it's a gypsy life. It really is. You know, I mean, I, one of my first questions is, do you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Do you have a dog or a bird or a cat? Get rid of them because it's that kind of business when you're starting out. You have to be able to go. You know, you keep a gig bag packed and the phone rings and off you go. Now, back when we when I started in the 80s, the, the phone was on the wall. <laughs> and uh, but it was also a much more polite time because if somebody was calling you for a job and they left a message at 10 o'clock in the morning they'd wait till six o'clock at night for you to call back to say yes or no now if you don't answer your text they're on to the next guy I mean it's really changed a lot but uh, anyway so I wanted to, I wanted to work on Firestarter I'd read the book the year before and I just loved it and I thought oh man there's gonna be all this fire and so I went out to the, it wasn't the studio then, it was just a metal building on 23rd Street surrounded by 10 acres of grass and bushes and, and trees in the background. You're talking about what is now East What is now, the stu- yes, it was just a metal building and, uh, and they had trailers and trucks parked around it and they were building sets inside and whatnot. And, and uh, so I went out to see if I could get on special effects. I had no clue what I was doing. And so... And, of course, there was no fences. There was nothing. So I just drove my motorcycle right on to the, to the little driveway. And then, you know, I was asking where the special effects was. And people kept pointing me farther and farther back of the lot. And so special effects' trailer was all the way in the very back, which I kind of took to mean just in case they blow up, they won't hurt anybody. <laughs> but anyway, so I went and I knocked on the door. And this big, tall California opened the door. And... Uh, I introduced myself and gave him my resume. You know, I mean, I'm 23 years old, for God's sakes. And uh, and he listens to my spiel, and then he just goes, you know what, kid? You know, this is a dangerous show. I'm bringing all my guys from California. There's, you know, And I said, oh, I just want to intern. He goes, no, nope, it's just too dangerous. 
So the next day I came out and I knocked on the door and he opened the door and he goes, didn't I talk to you yesterday? And I said, yes, but you know what we didn't talk about? And then we talked for a few more minutes. And anyway, I did this about seven, eight days in a row. Now, sometimes when I tell the story, I say 15 days, 17 days for dramatic effect. But I did. <laughs> I, I knocked every day for a week, week and a half. And it got to the point that it That's was... That's an important lesson for and, kids, and, too. And, and, and it got to the point that it was kind of a, a, a break for him, because I always came in the morning. And we'd sit on the steps, and we'd just chat about Wilmington, where he was staying, you know, things I knew about the town, where the cool little tiny bars were, because there was only six bars in town back in those days, and uh, only two downtown. And uh, anyway, we got to be friends, but he had always ended with, I'm still not hiring you. I'm still not hiring you. So I'm leaving one day, and... I'm driving by the paint shack, if you will, the trailer, and there's a guy that I know is a Wilmingtonian. I didn't, I didn't know him, but we were such a small town back then. You kind of recognize each other. And, uh, and I walked, uh, you know, got off my bike, and I walked over to him, and I said, how'd you get this job, man? And he was all, oh, I don't know, I just kind of showed up one day, and they just needed some help. And I was like, man, I've been banging on this guy's door for... And at that moment, a, a, a painter named Ward Welton, he was the paint boss, and... Uh, he came out and started screaming at me. When I say seven o'clock, I mean 7 a.m. You're two hours late and I want you in there. And if you don't get some primer on every bit of raw wood, you're fired. And I looked at him and I looked at that other guy and I looked back at him and I said, I'm so sorry, sir. That won't happen again. And I went running in that building and I painted for two days <laughs> before he came back to me and said, you ain't that guy I talked to on the phone. And I went, no, sir, I'm not. And I started picking up my stuff. He goes, where are you going? I said, well, I'm not the guy you thought I was. He goes, oh, please. We're just making movies here. You can stay. And that's how I got my first job. Wow. And, and, and the point is, it was the tenacity. It was the just, you know, I knew he was going to say no every day, but I just felt like. Why did I, you keep showing up? Because I felt like if I was there, something else might happen. Or he might introduce me to somebody to get me off his back. You know what I mean? And you're trying to trying to use use people to help you move forward, and so and of course I always try and do it a friendly way. You know, I mean, uh, you I, were I, only 23. Is yeah. that a lesson your your dad taught you, or uh, how do you well, think you well, knew that? Uh, here, here's a lesson my dad uh, threw, or not a lesson, but something my dad threw at me when I was in the 11th grade. I wore glasses and braces, and I was 125 pounds, and I was just scrawny and just sad looking, just sad. And my dad, you know, he was always pumping me and my brother up and always building comments and he says you know what you need to do you need to go to I forget what what hip men's men's clothing store it was at the mall he says you need to go in there and you need to tell them who you are and that you want to make a deal with them if they dress you for the school year you will promote them all year long and I looked at my dad and I said dad I'm not the quarterback of the high school football team <laughs> he goes no but Everybody knows you. You're funny. You're popular. I said, I don't know. No. But I, I loved that confidence he had. And that's what he gave me. Yeah. The confidence. Because at the end of the day, we're all terrified. You know, we are. And so it, it really is. I, I called it for years. I would put on my Bob Davis mask. And then I would walk into a room. Because my father was five foot three. But every room he walked into, he was the biggest man in the room. Because he was so bright. Yeah. And just so much fun and just a great sense of humor. And so I would wear his mask and I wore his mask for years. And so you, through 
sheer tenacity, you get this job because of mistaken identity, and then you keep the job. And then not too long after that, you get called into the office, and you think you're going to be fired. I am, because I, at this point, I've been painting on the show for about six weeks, and I get, a, I get uh, someone comes to the, to, we're, we're out at Orton Plantation building the recreation of the house that's going to be burned down. And This I'm, is still fire starter. Yeah, and, I, and I'm up on scaffolding, and and they, Scott Davis, I want to see you back in town. And so I'm driving back into town, terrified, going to the main office. Oh, I'm Scott Davis. I'm, I'm supposed to see somebody. Oh, yeah, go to the director's trailer. So I go to the director's trailer. And I'm thinking, I can't believe this guy's n- not busy enough that he can fire the painters. I would just think he'd be busier. <laughs> and so I, I knock on the director's door, and the little secretary's in there, and she's squished up against the wall because it's a little tiny trailer. And I go, hey, I'm Scott Davis. Oh, yeah, go right on in. He'll be back. He's on set. He'll be back in just a minute. Oh, my God. You know, really, this is getting frightening. So about three minutes later, he comes bounding in, and uh, he goes, Oh, man, I really loved your read, man. And, you know, I, I just wanted to make sure you were still good to do it. And I, I had no idea what he was talking about. And he, uh, he goes, You know, uh, the role, bearded student. I said, oh, what? I really don't know what you're talking I'm a painter on your show. I, I, I think you have me confused. He goes, No, it's, it's you. And he turns around. There's a big stack of VHS tapes, and he goes through and he finds one, he pops it in, and there I am at some audition. And I'm going, where did you get that? He goes, I don't know, there was some big cattle call downtown at a hotel, and as soon as he said that, I remembered a bunch of friends of mine were on my front porch on a Sunday morning. Don Ansel called me and says, you need to go down to the Hilton. They're audi- doing auditions for Firestarter, and I've given your name to a few people. Well, we've been drinking beers. We've been having a good morning, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, gosh, so I go down. I mean, I'm not drunk, but I got a good buzz. And, you know, and, and of course, all this is coming back to me as I'm sitting in this director's <laughs> office, and I go, oh, yeah, I do remember this. I said, but, you know, I was drinking that day. He goes, I don't give a dang what you were doing. Can you do it again? I said, I think so. He goes, okay, fine. Well, I need you to, you know, go to the office. They're going to give you a bunch of paperwork, and then they'll tell you where to go. And so then I went and met the makeup guy, and then the next day we built my face. And, and then four days later, I, we, I was on set. You're, and you're shooting that scene that yeah. we heard. Yeah. So you went on to become a grip. Yes. At, at just 25. So this is just two years later. Now, there are a lot of people who will hear this who are unfamiliar with the terms and what they mean. We've we've heard key grip. We know that's a department head. But sure. what's a grip? What's best boy the, and what's the, rigging? The simplest thing, uh, a grip is uh, there's, a, there's a team of them. You have the key grip who's the boss. And he's the guy with all the brilliant ideas. And he works directly with the director of photography and the gaffer who is the chief electrician. So that's that's the triangle. And so then the electrician, the, the, the gaffer has his team of electricians. The key grip has his team of grips. We uh, The grips are the handymen of the set. We work with the electricians to light. Sh- we shape the light. The electricians put up the light. Grips shape the light. All camera movement you ever see is always there's a grip behind it, whether it's the dolly grip or we're building car rigs or cranes or whatever. Any kind of movement you'll see. We're also responsible for the safety on the set. And when I, what I mean by that is because there is a safety officer, but we are the guys that go, no, that's dangerous. We can fix that. We can make that safer. So anyway, um, and then, of course, the best boys, they're sort of the managers of the department. We basically deal with tomorrow. We prepare tomorrow for the key grip and the crew. And so we line up all of the equipment and the manpower, and we handle all the paperwork, all the rental agreements, all the payroll, and we do those kind of things. But in a nutshell, the best boy deals with tomorrow. Now, your first key grip job 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is a film that was released in 1990. It was, for some people, an unexpected hit because it was an independent film. It wasn't a big studio picture. It was uh, lower budget. And for those who aren't familiar with what is now a franchise, oh, let's let's just get a sense of what this is. We we're going to hear in this clip the four teenage turtles who are back at their hideout with their mentor, their master, a rat named Splinter, and their adolescence cannot be contained. So let's listen. <laughs> Your ninja skills are reaching their peak. Only one truly important lesson remains, but must wait. I know it is hard for you here, underground. I want a large, thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. Your teenage minds abroad, eager. But you must never stop practicing the art of ninja. The art of invisibility. Oh, but no anchovies. And I mean no anchovies. You put anchovies on this thing and you're in big trouble, okay? I can't let you know. Uh, that'll do. And the clock's ticking, dude. (laughs) (laughs) You are still young. But one day, I will be gone. And so this is the story of these four turtles. Just a side note real quick. The the puppeteer playing Splinter is the guy that does Elmo. The guy that does Elmo. Yeah, the and guy that invented Elmo. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I can't think of his last name, but uh, but it's that's that's the performer who who was doing uh, the Splinter puppet. So it's kind of and that and that was uh, prior to Elmo coming out. You know what I mean? Because that's a whole story I won't get into now. But anyway, uh, but the the puppeteers were just amazing people, you know. Um, and all of these turtles, I mean, they were multiple well, actors, well, let, right? Well, let, let me first say, when, when I got the call, oh, and, and, and I got to say this. I got that job because they wanted Bobby Huber. Bobby Huber was my boss. He was the first guy to hire me out of the paint department. And he was one of the guys I met on Firestarter. And so he knew me. And every time I saw him for the next few years, I'd give him a resume. And finally, one day, he walked through set, saw me painting, and said, hey, do you want to be a rigger? I need some riggers. And that's how I got my start with him. Okay. I just, I wanted to really just shout out to Bobby because he really gave me my career. And, uh, so anyway, so they wanted Bobby Huber for Teenage Mutant Ninja, but he was, he'd gotten a bigger picture. I think, I think he was going to Chicago at that point. But anyway, um, and so Bobby had pitched to me, you know, he said, I've trained him. He's been with me for years and, and, uh, he's your guy. And, uh, so anyway, so, so I went in to interview, and my first question was, what's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? Because, <laughs> you know, I, at this point, I'm 28, 29 years old, and I literally had never heard of this, you know. And, of course, obviously, as time went on, we all heard of them. But I, I really, all I knew was that the Henson Company was doing the puppeteering and that it was going to be live action. And uh, the DP was a man named John Fenner coming from England. And uh, anyway, and John Ferguson was the... Uh, Gaffer and uh, John and I go all the way back to the beginning. I actually worked with John and Bobby on my first rigging project. So, you know, there's a lot of family connections yeah. uh, going on at this time. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't know where I was going other than to say that. So the turtles, they were complicated. Well, they, they, they were brilliant. 
um, because they were. This was the first time they were expending, experimenting with radio-controlled heads. So all of the movement was being done through like those RC plane guys you see, and so they were they were they were using joysticks and they were using buttons and everything, and then it was all being transmitted to the head. Well. First couple days of shooting, we'd, we'd be, you know, we'd be in the middle of a scene where they're talking, and then all of a sudden, one of the heads would just start, just not spinning, but just all of a sudden, the eyes are flapping and the tongue is <laughs> wagging, and it's just going, and the actor inside is like, "What's going on?" You know, because he can hear all these servo motors all going on at the same time, and and I think it took him a couple days to realize it was the airport, and every time a plane was coming in, and they would key their radio to talk to the tower, it was the same frequency. You are listening to Coastline. Scott Davis, key grip from the 1990 film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, is my guest today. We'll take a short break. We're going to hear more about the turtles. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Scott Davis launched his film career in Wilmington, North Carolina, just when the industry itself, brought here by Dino De Laurentiis, was getting started in the state. Since then, Scott Davis has worked in some professional capacity on Rambling Rose, Stephen King's The Night Flyer, Tammy, the TV series Matlock, Oprah Winfrey's The Wedding, and among many others, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film from 1990. This Sunday, June 12th, the North Carolina Filmmaker Series is offering a free screening of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington. Scott Davis will be there to answer audience questions after the screening. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles got mixed reviews from critics, but it was a huge box office success. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the film grossed $202 million. And that's in 1989 dollars. Right. You know, and against this budget of just yeah. $13.5 million, yeah. which is incredible. So it was the highest grossing independent film up to at that point, I think okay. Blair, I Blair that, Witch okay. took over. But yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah. Did you know it was going to be such a success? Well, again, not having any real connection to the characters or, or the comic book world, um, for me, I was just I was just so nervous trying to get my do the, do my job. It was my first key grip job, and you know, and I had surrounded myself with some of my closest friends, and and also those people I knew would be honest with me, and they would call me. When I was going in the wrong direction, you know, um, they, they did. They really looked after me. And and because uh, I was, you know, part of me, I've always believed I was I started too young as a key grip. You know, again, it goes back to that emotional. Um, I'd, I'd been best in for about 
four years at that time, and I really kind of felt like I had gotten thrown into it. And I mean, I was excited. My ego was like, "Oh yeah!" But you know, but really, in reflecting back, you know, uh, I, I would I, I was a hothead. You know, I'd, I'd get I'd get I'd overreact to certain things. So uh, how old were you at I that was, point? I was 29 years old. Okay, still and in your tw- 20s. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you, the executive yeah. portion of your brain has maybe finished growing. Oh, just not even. <laughs> and uh, no, I really came to my own when I hit 40. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but but it was it was an, it was it was exciting because it was so different. And of course, we went to Ideal Cement, and that's where the bad guys' lair is. And there's all these people, you know, and. And we really did some cool shots, and and again, John Fenner, the director, and Mike Brewster was the camera operator, and both of them just really, and they'd done a lot together, so they were good friends, so they really communicated well, and but we created some real neat moments, and uh, and just just everyone on the show, it was it was it was one of the, one for the books, we'll say, but we still didn't appreciate what it was going to become. And so a lot of this was shot in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. But oh, some of oh, it was yeah. shot in New York. Well, right? they, they, they had to go up and steal a few shots just to establish New York because we, uh, we didn't have the technology that we have today where you don't have to go anywhere. You can bring the entire world to you. Um, but, uh, but no, but, but the bulk of it, you know, 95 percent of it was shot right here. And uh, I mean, we built the entire sewer systems on, on, on the stages. You know, all those, all those walking through the sewers and skating through the sewers, that's all built on the stages. Those were all sets yeah, here all in sets. North yeah. Carolina. Yeah, there's a big rooftop battle in the pouring rain. That's all on stage four, I believe. Um, you know, I mean, it just, yeah, you know, that, we were still building just about everything back in those days, you know, in the late 80s. And, uh, and you know, it's funny. It's one of the things I really, in some of the last projects I worked on, there was so much green screen. Uh, I would wonder sometimes how the actors could stay focused because, you know, and then you watch a show like Lord of the Rings where everything was green screen, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, we were, we were building everything. You got a job on a TV series shot in North Carolina, Matlock, which starred the late Andy Griffith. Who was, who was a real pleasure to work with. He really was. And let me say, Bobby Huber got me that job. All right. Because <laughs> that was another one where they wanted him. And he said, no, 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 my guy will do it for you. And in between those two shows, I went out with him to California and we did Back to the Future 3. And we spent 12 weeks in the high deserts of California uh, working on that, which was kind of cool. But anyway, I come back and, and then Matlock yeah. appears in my lab. And so this was interesting because Andy Griffith didn't talk to you right off the bat. Andy Griffith brought seven people with him from California. And for the first month, those were the only people he talked to. I think Chet Spear, who was the prop master, I think he was the first local guy because Chet and he interacted all the time with his props. And also Chet is such a personal guy. And so, yeah, all of a sudden you'd hear uh, Andy call Chet's name and everybody else was like, oh, well. (laughs) But uh, anyway, so Andy hadn't talked to me in a couple of months. And and I'm on set right next to him all day long. The gaffer, a guy named Bill Huff, old Hollywood, you know, just a real gentleman. And, uh, and of course, he'd known Andy for years. So anytime he had any questions about what he and I were doing, it was always Huffer, 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 you know. And then one day he walks onto set and he walks right up to me. He goes, hey, Scott, how you doing, buddy? And I looked at him and I said, you're flirting with my wife, aren't you? Because my <laughs> wife was the hairstyle, key hairstylist. And he goes, what? No, no. I said, Andy Griffith, you didn't even know my name. 
yesterday. I said, and all of a sudden, I'm your buddy. The only thing that would do that is you said something to my wife, and she snapped back at you, didn't she? <laughs> he goes, well, well, you know, we just we have fun in the trailer sometimes. I said, yeah. I, I said, well, hello, Andy. Nice to see you. You know, and then I went about my work. But uh, And that's what it was. He was being, you know, he was goofing off with Saber, and she just said, hey, if you don't quit this, I'm going to tell my husband. And he goes, "Where? who's your husband? He's your key grip on set. And he was like, what? <laughs> Anyway, uh, but everybody kind of found their little relationship with him. And by the end of the first season, uh, he knew everybody's name. And the thing about working with Andy, I mean, he came to Wilmington. One of the main reasons they came to Wilmington was that, uh, NBC wanted one more season of Matlock. And he said, the only reason way I'll do it is if you can get me to my home in Manio every weekend. And so I think they looked at Virginia, they looked at Atlanta, and they looked at Wilmington. And they ended up picking Wilmington because... We're three minutes from the airport, and he could literally beat, walk through his front door in Manio in 45 minutes from leaving the stage. Mm-hmm. So that really became a, a big part of it. And uh, But at the end of the first season, or what was the only season, it w- uh, we shot from like June to December, and it was just before Christmas. And I think we had two or three days left, and Andy comes on set. And it was one of the courtroom days, and that's always a big, you know, it's a morning of shooting the courtroom. And... Uh, and he says, I have an announcement. I've just gotten off the phone with, I forget who the president of ABC was. Uh, but we, he has just decided to pay me a ridiculous amount of money. So we're doing two more years of Matlock on ABC. And I mean, everybody just lost their mind. Because it was such a wonderful uh, show and experience. And there's always a lot of sadness, especially on series, because you do really grow a family. And, and sometimes it's the perfect family. And you just hate tearing it apart because everyone is just on the same page. And and, there, and I've only been on a few shows, and most people will tell you, they've only been on a few shows where it was that magical, you know, that perfect. And uh, so, yeah, we were all kind of sad. It was coming to an end, you know, and back to movie of the weeks. And then he came in with that announcement. And, uh, yeah, so we did three years. Wow. And, you know, it's going back to him not talking to you right away. You actually, the way you think about that and the way you thought about it at the time, you you gave him a lot of grace for that. You seem to understand where he was coming from. Andy Griffith, the world thinks Andy Griffith is their sheriff. The world thinks they know Andy Taylor because we do know Andy Taylor. We know Andy Taylor because he's been in every living room in the world. And so when you have that kind of star and you're near him, you... You forget that he's a complete stranger because he's family to you. And so we tend to be a little aggressive. Andy, 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 Andy. And Andy for years, you know, the stories of Andy for years, signing those autographs and taking those pictures and, and you know, just being that guy. And he finally just couldn't do it anymore. He was getting older. And so he just started, you know, sneaking onto sets. And, you know, or, you know his people would move him around because he just, he just didn't have the energy anymore. And... I get it, you know. People don't realize it takes a lot to to turn to every single person. who. who and, and, and the only reason we feel that way is because television has made us uh, so much more uh, close to one another in terms of our stars, in terms of the people we like watching on television. And then all of a sudden we're standing next to them. And all we want to do is share that love. But, you know, when you're Andy Griffith, that love is intense. It's it's a thousand. And the volume set at a thousand. And so yeah. So I just I really and I really began to appreciate it working with him, especially when we go on location. And every now and then, 
he'd be like waiting to go on and somebody, hey, Andy, and he'd look up and he'd give a little little duck wave and, and, and then, you know, and then he'd turn around and get back into what he was doing. But uh, yeah, you just have to get, you have to appreciate for a guy like that. Yeah. So you're- I, can, I, can I real quickly just say okay. Dustin Hoffman, we were doing Billy Bathgate uh, up in Hamlet, North Carolina, and we were up there for two weeks, and they had, basically they had rented the entire old downtown that was pretty much empty. It was, it was two blocks of two, three-story buildings. And the first day, we had Dustin Hoffman on the set. It was the bar set, and, uh, and it was all the way down at the end of the two blocks, and everybody had to come up. There was parking behind one building, and everybody had to come up. Well, the entire town of Hamlet had lined up because they knew that Dustin was in town that day. Wow. Now, we have been lighting all morning, and there's a crew of 65 people waiting for Dustin. And he's being brought up. His assistant is bringing him up. And as he comes up out of this little tunnel, he sees all these people. And I'm across the street at the craft service table, so I'm just, I'm just kind of watching all this going on. And I see him say something to his assistant. She runs back down the tunnel. Within two minutes, she runs back up. She's got a pack it with her and then he walks and now the PA is going Mr. Hoffman this way we got to get to set he goes hang on a minute he walks over there and he spends the next 45 minutes handshaking that stack was photographs wow. he's signing them and 45 minutes there is 60 people waiting for him and I asked him the next day I saw him at the craft service and I said I said Mr. Hoffman what was that about that 45 minutes you just spent he goes those are the people that pay my salary yeah. Not the guys down on set. Yeah. They pay my salary. Yeah. And Very I will wise. always give them. And I have always loved telling that story. Anyway. Your last film, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, released in 2017, stars Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson. I found a little bit, it's not the trailer, but the writer and director, Martin McDonough, oh, is talking about how he wrote this film. So let's let's listen to this quickly. Back about 17 years ago, I was on a bus through America and saw something not dissimilar to what we see on the first and second billboards. It stuck in my mind, just the idea of who would have put something like that up. Once I decided it was a woman and a mother, things just kind of almost wrote themselves to a degree. I'd do anything to catch your daughter's killer. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby, some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. It is a very, very tricky thing to find humor in a story that's based on a young girl's murder. There's nothing funny about that, and there's nothing funny about Mildred's grief, but putting her in situations that subvert that end up being really darkly humorous. And Martin's a master at it. Cut. So this was a film that won Oscars, received rave reviews, story about a woman who's angry about the lack of progress by law enforcement on her daughter's rape and murder case. You were the key grip on that film. Best boy. Best boy, sorry. Best boy on that film. What was that like, and why was that your last one? Well, why it was my last one is it's a two-parter, and one part we will not have time for today. The other part was that I just, I was tired. I've been doing it almost 40 years. And at that point in 2016, all the work had moved back to Atlanta. I mean, every bit of it. Right. And 
but that's a whole other conversation. And you about weren't the gonna politics. go. You and I, here. and I just, I just, you know, my wife, my wife has put up with so much over the years in terms of me leaving, and and of course, you know, she would come with me when she could back in the old days, and but we were just tired of being separated. Not to mention, she had broken her leg three weeks before I had to go to Asheville for this movie, and she's a hairdresser and been for her whole career, and uh, she all of a sudden couldn't work. And so I had to take this film. I could, you know, I mean, any other situation, a, a man would have said, oh, I can't leave her right now. But right. I had to take the job, and that hurt my feelings. That just hurt my feelings. And, and of course, we got my wife up and running, and we got her back in the salon. She had a rolling chair, and she just kept that leg up. I mean, she had surgery on the leg and everything. But it, so that, so when I got back, I was already about done and then when Dennis my key grip who we'd done a lot of films together we talked about you know what are we going to do and and I looked at him and I said you know I I might be done and he goes oh and then about six eight months later he called me back and says you know I might be done too you know um yeah it was just this uh, was really kind of a stark it, it, there was like a lot of emotions reveal going on. of priorities and, for and, you. I, and I'll tell you uh time proved uh really uh it really turned out well because in 2018, uh, Hurricane Florence destroyed my entire life. And uh, and had I still been in the film business, I'd still be clearing trees three years later. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah. we have just a minute or so left. And you, you have done so much in your career, Scott Davis, both in the film world and in the theater world. If you could talk to a younger version of yourself. Or your own self. What are some of those lessons? Because you've said in this conversation several times that you were too young mm-hmm. for this or for that, or you wish you'd taken a gap year. What would you say now? Um, you know, I I love working with people. Uh, I love managing talent. I love I love figuring out what people's strengths and weaknesses are, and then plugging them in as opposed to just well, he doesn't fit that, so he's got to go. Um, because everybody has. Has, has a place. Um, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in give the hardest job to the laziest guy and he will show you the easiest way to do it. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, so, uh, so between that and, uh, and, and just what I've learned in my life, if I were to do it all over again, I'd become a PA and work my way up to being a producer <laughs> through the AD department because that to me, that would have been the next vision of, version of me, I think, you know. Yeah. And that is this edition of Coastline. (laughs) I knew it wouldn't be enough time with you. You have so many good stories, Scott Davis. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thanks also to the North Carolina Filmmaker Series. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Mm-hmm.